calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. It's Friday, July 31st, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. There are upwards of 2.5 million medical marijuana users in the United States alone. These patients are using medical marijuana for a variety of ailments, pain management, seizures, PTSD, even to treat cancer. And that invites one really big question. Are they using it in a scientifically sound manner? We don't have an overwhelming history of peer-reviewed research on the topic, but David Kasseret set out to find answers by talking with patients, doctors, researchers, and even experimenting on himself. He's written a new book entitled Stoned, A Doctor's Case for Medical Marijuana. Loyal listeners may remember David from episode 46 on the science of death. He's the associate professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and director of hospice and palliative care at the University of Pennsylvania Health System. And regardless of your feelings on marijuana, with a booming population of medical marijuana users, I found his views on marijuana as a medication refreshing and really frank. But that'll be our interview for this week. Indre, did anything catch your eye in the news? Yeah, and before we get there, I just have to say I'm really glad that you're covering this topic because it's one that I have avoided for a long time. Um, you know, there's a lot of sound science, I think, at least from my memory of the effects of cannabinoids on rodents and the picture's not so pretty. Um, but there isn't a lot of work done on humans. And of course, a lot of people use marijuana and they use it and they, they at least report that they have benefits. And so I've been really cagey because I just felt that overwhelmed by the amount of kind of research that I'd have to do. So I'm glad it's on your lap. 
So with that aside, uh, one thing that caught my eye this week was an article that was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. So often if we want to figure out what is the relative contribution of genetics versus the environment to a particular trait, we can look at twin studies, right? So we can compare fraternal twins who share about 50% of their DNA with identical twins who share 100%. And this study actually builds on previous research that showed that kids with higher IQs tend to live longer. And people who are successful in their careers also tend to live longer. So for example... Brains over brawn. Excellent. (laughs) Well, maybe. Um, So there was a study of people born in Scotland in 1921. And when they were 11 years old, they took an intelligence test. And it turns out that their performance on that intelligence test was a fairly good predictor of whether or not they were still alive at age 76. So, of course, we have to wonder whether the effect is largely driven by environmental factors like diet and stress and, you know, schooling, income and so forth, or whether it really is largely genetic. This feels like the old nature versus nurture argument. Which is primarily specious, right? Because, of course, genes don't act in a vacuum. They need the environment in order to be expressed. Um, But... Uh, there is still this question of how much can we do? How much does an environment? How much influence does the environment have um, that that we can measure versus genetics? So this paper included twin data from the U.S. So they used a sample of male veterans of World War II, um, the Swedish twin sample, and the Danish twin registry, which is probably the biggest nationwide registry of twins in the world. And the bottom line is that the link. Um, might be more genetic than environmental. In fact, they argue that of, uh, over all of these three cohorts or, or three um, sets of twins, that there is about a 95% uh, genetic component to the correlation between intelligence and lifespan. So intelligence can extend lifespan in a number of ways, right? I mean, it's it's also been correlated with other factors like how resilient your brain is to damage, uh, how big your brain is, how open you are to new things, how conscientious and agreeable you are. Um, and of course, even the ability to walk, run and climb stairs in old age. So obviously, intelligence is a complicated set of factors. Um, but you know, it is kind of interesting to to see that there might be this large genetic component when it comes to how intelligence might affect your lifespan. Wait, is this a causal link where uh, intelligence is actually the variable we're mentioning or we're measuring here, or is it the consequences of being smart? Like you have better socioeconomic status, so you might eat healthier and live in a slightly less stressful environment. Well, all of this work is correlational. So unless we actually reared children in an environment in which we could manipulate some of these things, um, which of course would be totally unethical, we really can't get at the causation issue. So I think it's a, you know, it's a really interesting finding that, that there is this link between intelligence and lifespan, but I think it also suggests that anything that you can do to increase your intelligence as measured by these tests, right? So by the time these kids are 11, uh, they have been influenced by a lot of different things, or by the time they've taken these cognitive tests, you know, there are a lot of things that can, you know, improve your performance on cognitive testing. So it's still a bit murky, uh, but I think that and obviously, this is you know one more reason why we should encourage our kids to get the best education they possibly can. So that was what caught my eye this week. What about you? So filling up my social feed was pictures of Cecil the lion. And it was a really sad image of the dead lion who was killed during a trophy hunt by an American dentist and the ensuing sort of mob reaction 
uh, to the photos that emerge. And that outrage had me wonder about efforts that are being made to prevent poaching of threatened species, especially in Africa. And I stumbled across a, a story in the UK Mirror about a British team led by Chester University's Dr. Paul O'Donohue, who are implanting devices in rhino horns. They're actually putting a spy camera directly into the horn. They have to sedate the rhino and actually drill in and insert this into the rhino. But the rhino doesn't actually feel any long-term um, uh, effects from it. And then they have real-time video monitoring of what's happening with the rhino. And if they're able to spot a poacher, this rapid response team is able to launch a helicopter and chase down the poachers in real time. At least that's the hope of this system. Uh, and largely, it's based on the fact that the area that rhino occupy is massive. And so you'll see pictures of rhinos going wandering around under armed guard, armed physical guard, uh, but that isn't sustainable or scalable. But so you're telling me that there's somewhere where there's a room full of monitors of people that are watching the view from the rhino? Yep. That's what they're building right now in Africa. And the whole reason behind this is uh, there's been a huge escalation in rhino poaching. It's gone up 9,000 times in the last decade. Uh, that means that a rhino is killed every six hours in Africa right now. And at the current rate, they'd be extinct by 2035. So even though there's legislation in place to protect it, and even though they've put boots on the ground, it's not enough to actually stem the tide. And they're having to resort to different technological and innovative approaches like this to actually make a huge difference. And for the first time, there's a lot of hope that we're sort of turning the tables on the poachers. Body cams on rhinos. I hope it works. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with your interview with David Cassaret. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the new series, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. In 12 half-hour episodes, this series by Professor Lonnie A. Gamble, who is the co-director of the Sustainable Living Program at Maharishi University of Management, will teach you sustainable living practices that will help you reduce your home energy consumption, for example, by 75% or more. It might help you heat your home without fossil fuels and produce enough clean energy to contribute back to the grid or leave it all together. Reduce and potentially eliminate your water bill, grow your own pesticide-free fruits, vegetables, and herbs year-round, and make effective cleaning products at home that are safer and cheaper than anything you can buy at the store. This special offer of 80% off Fundamentals of Sustainable Living is only valid for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. David Kasseret, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Great to be with you again. Before you wrote this book, what were your expectations around medical marijuana, specifically from a science and uh, perspective? <laughs> Pretty close to nothing, actually. I, I really thought of medical marijuana as a, a joke. Uh, if it were a medicine, it would always be a medicine described in, in kind of that way inside of ironic air quotes. But I, uh, I took care of a patient um, who came to me, uh, a retired English professor who had advanced uh, cancer, came to me with complaints of several symptoms, including pain and nausea, and asked me in the course of our visit whether medical marijuana might help her. And I told her, no, it's, it's an illegal drug, first of all, there's no evidence, second of all. And 
Um, but she's, she was a retired English professor who was used to giving her students a really tough time. She was a tough cross-examiner. And, and she asked me whether I was sure that there were no randomized controlled trials. And I said, yes, if, if there were, I would have heard of them. And then she pulled the printouts of a couple of studies out of her handbag and showed them to me. And at that point, I had to admit that maybe I didn't know the evidence as well as I thought I did. And uh, so I promised her I would take a look. I'd look at the studies. I'd look for others. I'd talk to a few researchers and see whether I thought medical marijuana might help her. And uh, it was really that conversation that led me to write this book, because if I didn't know about the potential benefits, and there are some as a palliative care physician, I figured there were a lot of people out in the world who didn't know either. Is that a common occurrence now where you're seeing more and more patients looking at um, uh, marijuana and other sort of alternative uh, treatments, especially when it comes to pain, as as driving the conversation? Or is this really a research-driven conversation? It's. Um, I can comment on my experience as a physician. Uh, there are a few questions that I get from patients, but I practice in Pennsylvania where medical marijuana is not yet legal. And so I'm sure I don't get as many questions as my colleagues do, say, those who live in uh, Colorado, Oregon, California, particularly places like California, where it's been legal for a long time. So for me, it was, was partly a, a theoretical research question. But I've certainly noticed just in the last couple of months that I'm getting more questions from patients independent of, of the book. Some of them don't even realize that I've written a book on the topic. Uh, but it's gotten such national media attention that uh, patients, I think, are starting to ask their physicians. And one hidden lesson to this, to me, is that physicians really need to be prepared for these questions because we're going to get them. Let's dive into the science a little bit. Let's talk about the active ingredients in marijuana that are really a focus here. Sure. Um, one answer to that question, not a very satisfying one, is that we don't really know. And what I mean by that is that in a typical cannabis plant, there are dozens of cannabinoids and actually extending that a little bit further, there have been more than 100 cannabinoids synthesized in laboratories. So there are a lot of cannabinoids out there, the active ingredients in, in marijuana. We don't really know what all of them do. Some of those that have been described in, in uh, laboratory studies haven't been tested in humans at all yet. The two that we know at least something about are THC and CBD. So THC is tetrahydrocannabinol and CBD is cannabidiol. And those are the two cannabinoids that are present in the largest amounts in cannabis, and they're the ones, not coincidentally, that have been studied the most. We know, for instance, that it's THC that is what causes the, the high euphoric stoned feeling. We know less about what CBD does. We know that it doesn't make you high or stoned. Um, we think it might have some impact on the immune system, may have some role in treating pain, particularly neuropathic pain. Um, but still, the science about how each of those interacts with receptors in the body is still relatively new. So where do these cannabinoids uh, interact? Uh, are they interacting in our, um, in, in our brain? Are they interacting in our lymphatic system? Well, the first thing to know is that uh, the answer to those questions is yes, probably pretty much everywhere. And and to understand that answer, uh, it, it helps to know that the way that marijuana does what it does is by acting by way of what's called the endocannabinoid system. Uh, we all of us have in our bodies natural hormones and neurotransmitters called endocannabinoids, um, of which probably the, the most well-known is one called anandamide. Uh, Ananda is derived from the, the Sanskrit for bliss. So literally, it's the bliss molecule. 
uh, that phrase was coined by Raphael Meshulam, who I had a chance to meet when I was researching the book, uh, widely regarded as the grandfather of medical marijuana science, uh, a biologist who uh, works still uh, in his 80s now in, um, in Jerusalem at Hebrew University. And he and uh, one of his junior faculty at the time, Bill Devane, were the ones who discovered anandamide. And anandamide is really the key to understanding what marijuana does because we don't come equipped at birth with marijuana receptors. I mean, we're not, we're not born to be able to react to the cannabinoids in marijuana. Um, but we are born with this endocannabinoid system, which includes molecules like anandamide uh, and, and others. And so when you take in the active ingredients of marijuana, THC, CBD, and others by smoking, vaporizing, eating, whatever – you're not actually activating some innate marijuana receptors. What you're doing is by taking in those molecules, THC and CBD, those molecules are sort of tricking your body into thinking that you actually have anandamide or other endocannabinoids binding to those receptors. In the same way, it's, it's similar to what happens with morphine. We don't have morphine receptors in our bodies, but morphine works by tricking our bodies into thinking that morphine is a natural hormone called um, uh, enkephalin. And so we don't have morphine receptors, but when we take in morphine intravenously or, or orally in the form of MS cotton or other drugs, our body thinks that it's really an enkephalin and, and reacts accordingly. Are THC and CBD working ind largely independently of each other, or are they working in concert in some way? That's a great question. We really don't know, but there are a lot of people out there, myself among them, who thinks that there is probably much more synergy there than we realize. So THC, as I said, usually makes you high, may have other effects, say on nausea. CBD is usually uh, implicated in the treatment of neuropathic pain, uh, decreased inflammation. So from that perspective, and the fact that they bind to different receptors, THC binds to CB1, CB2 receptors, I'm not really sure where CBD binds, but probably not to those receptors. They seem to be separate, but there are some interesting hints that they may require much more synergy than we thought. For instance, um, people thought that THC might have a big role in treating some symptoms like pain, um, because marijuana seems to be effective in treating pain, particularly neuropathic pain. But there's a synthetic form of THC that's available. The drug is called dronabinol. It's been on the market for years. And dronabinol, THC that's in pure form, doesn't seem to have much effect on neuropathic pain. So maybe it's the CBD that has an effect or, and this is a, a hypothesis that's got some growing currency in, in scientific circles, maybe it's not THC or even CBD, but the combination of THC and CBD and maybe other cannabinoids in smaller amounts in marijuana that are required to do uh, what needs to be done. You mentioned CB1 and CB2. Uh, can you tell us what those receptors are and where they're located? Sure. Um, so the CB1 and CB2 receptors uh, occur throughout the body, um, both in the brain and also in the reproductive tract. Uh, and they're responsible for probably some of uh, THC's uh, effects on euphoria, may also be responsible for some effects on nausea, potentially effects on neuropathic pain. Um, we don't really know how CBD fits into that scheme. We're pretty sure that in most cases, CBD doesn't bind to those receptors may bind to other receptors, um, so-called uh, vanilloid receptors and, and potentially others. 
that occur mostly elsewhere, although also in the brain. One of the other surprises about CBD is that it does seem to act on the brain, but not on neurons. It seems, as near as we can tell, that CBD acts on what are so-called microglial cells, which are kind of the immune cells that pack the neurons, that surround the neurons and, and keep them safe and protected in the brain. We always thought that, at least I thought in medical school, they didn't really do much. Um, but it turns out that CBD does bind to those receptors. And that may be one of the ways in which uh, CBD has effects, particularly on neuropathic pain. Um, but that's independent of, of CB1 and CB2 receptors. One other thing to know about the CB1 and CB2 receptors, though, is that I said they occur throughout the brain, and they do, with one big exception. They seem not to occur in the brainstem, which is the lower part of the brain that's responsible for key activities like breathing. And that's really important because there are a lot of drugs out there like benzodiazepines, like Valium, opioids like morphine, that cause uh, fatal overdoses because if you take too much, those drugs interfere with the brainstem's ability to drive our desire to breathe. And so you stop breathing and in a severe overdose, you die. And marijuana is interesting because since there are no cannabinoid receptors, as far as we know, in the brainstem, a marijuana overdose can't be fatal, at least not fatal in the same way that an opioid or a benzodiazepine overdose could be fatal. There's certainly other risks of medical marijuana, but at least a fatal overdose is not one of them. You've mentioned numerous times already about marijuana and its association with pain. What types of other areas did you research as marijuana potentially being effective in uh, for this new book? Sure. Um, there, there are two questions that you might ask about that. One is where people think it's effective. And, and interestingly, if you look at state laws that permit the use of medical marijuana, many, many conditions are listed as being qualifying conditions ranging from pain, as you mentioned, uh, nausea, depression, um, anxiety, loss of appetite, insomnia, um, the list goes on and on and on. Of those elements, those symptoms in that list, though, there's really only good data for some of them. We know it works for pain, particularly neuropathic pain. There's probably pretty good evidence it works for nausea, particularly nausea that's associated with chemotherapy. Um, it seems to work pretty well for the muscle spasms and spasticity that come from particularly uh, neurodegenerative conditions like multiple sclerosis. Those are probably the best uh, symptoms for which there's the most evidence. There's some evidence for other symptoms like uh, insomnia, uh, certainly case reports of its use for pediatric epilepsy, um, loss of appetite. One, though, that's particularly concerning, I think, to many of us is that lots and lots of people use it to treat the symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and there haven't been any randomized control trials or really good studies of marijuana and PTSD. And I think that's concerning to a lot of us, um, not because we either believe or don't believe that it works, but when you've got a lot of people uh, who are turning to it for relief, we really, really need better evidence for that as, as well as many other symptoms. Well, let's start with pain, because that seems to be a chief area that there is evidence for. Uh, can you distinguish what neuropathic pain is versus other types of pain? Sure. So, um, and keep in mind, the distinction is always not as easy as <laughs> how I'm about to make it seem. But a good rule of thumb is that classic neuropathic pain is pain that's due to damage to the nerve itself rather than stimulation of the nerve endings. 
So whereas normally in so-called nociceptive pain, pain is caused if you sprain a wrist or you break a leg, um, that swelling and inflammation uh, incites the nerve endings uh, around that bone or, or joint and leads to the sensation of pain. That's, that's so-called normal pain. Neuropathic pain happens when the nerve itself is damaged. There may not be anything going on uh, in the location that nerve goes to, a foot, a leg. Um, but what's going on in the nerve itself, and particularly in the lining around the nerve, makes that nerve think that something is painful. And that can happen in a variety of conditions, ranging from things that are very, very common, like diabetes, Many people with diabetes develop a so-called diabetic neuropathy, which is associated with a loss of sensation and sometimes with pain. Um, sometimes neuropathic pain occurs after chemotherapy or with um, chronic uh, immunologic conditions like uh, lupus that are associated with inflammation. So lots of conditions could cause it, including uh, in people that I talked with in researching stoned. One woman's story was that she suffered a workplace accident. Um, severe nerve damage as part of some equipment falling on her and uh, really had a tough time getting any kind of relief with standard medications like opioids and other things that were pre prescribed. And that's the other thing to know about neuropathic pain, that not only is it unusual in the sense that it's, it's not the normal kind of pain that you normally think of with a sprained ankle or a broken leg, but it's really, really hard to treat with standard drugs like morphine. Um, which often are either ineffective or cause bad side effects or, or both. So not surprisingly, many people with neuropathic pain and many researchers have gotten very interested in, in medical marijuana um, simply because they're looking for some relief and they're not getting it from drugs that are available now. I guess that's really surprising to me. You know, when I walk down, you, you know, the pharmacy aisle, I see a million different medications for pain and then you know that obviously extends when you when you go into a medical facility you're really suggesting there's a real big gap in the marketplace right now in terms of of treating a certain type of pain uh has has that been known for a long time or is that something that's uh emerged in in sort of recent times that um the acknowledgement that there is this sort of uh, gap well, it's a little bit of both. I think those of us who work in the fields of pain and palliative care, whose business is treating, among other things, treating symptoms, we've known for a long time this gap. Um, patients who have suffered with neuropathic pain know that there's a gap. So uh, believe me, there, there are plenty of people out there who know that this is a significant problem. Um, on the other hand, drugs like opioids, morphine really are pretty effective for most people most of the time. And so uh, I think to some degree, although it's been recognized, it hasn't been a huge focus. Um, although I would point out that drugs like gabapentin have been around for a while. Um, the trade name is Neurontin, and it works through a receptor called GABA. And it's uh, been used for neuropathic pain for at least a decade now. And that drug was developed initially as a seizure drug, I think, but um, really marketed as a pain drug because drug companies knew that there was, there was a gap. It's also important to keep in mind that some of this is is science, meaning what drugs we have for what indication and what works and what doesn't. But the other big gap we have, frankly, is the way that health systems are designed, uh, the way that physicians are asked to see patients. 
Um, and many physicians, in fact, I would say probably most, if not all, just don't have the time that's required to take a full history to go over with a patient what medications she's tried in the past, what's worked, and make recommendations. So not only is there a gap in terms of the science and available drugs, but there's also a gap in terms of what health systems can do for people. And I say that because I'm becoming increasingly convinced that many people have turned to medical marijuana, not only because they need relief for a symptom, but because they've become frustrated by the health system's ability or lack of ability to help them, whether it's because of a physician who won't take the time to listen to them, a physician who, rather than asking questions, will just write a prescription for another drug, um, whether it's because they have a prescription, they got it filled, they tried it, it doesn't work, and now they have to wait for three months to get back to see the physician again. There, there are all of these challenges of, of modern healthcare that I think are frustrating to people. So yeah, it's partly a gap in science, but it's partly a gap of, of how well health systems and physicians and nurses are able to meet patients' needs. Are they also turning to medical marijuana for you know, everyday issues, minor issues, because some of the examples you gave are, are pretty serious medical conditions, like related to, to cancer, related to uh, huge injuries in the workplace. But could we see this being used for, you know, something as common as back pain that we know, you know, millions upon millions uh, suffer from in the U.S.? Well, as, as you know, in the book Stoned, um, about midway through writing the book, uh, I had a spell of really horrendous back pain which is, is one of these things that happens disproportionately to middle-aged people, particularly middle-aged guys. And if, if you haven't experienced that, well, just, just wait. <laughs> you will. Uh, welcome to the aging process. It's really pretty miserable. Uh, horrendous pain and spasms that uh, really make it hard to, to even walk, uh, let alone go about your daily business. And I had one of these episodes as I was in the process of writing Stoned. I had read enough, talked to enough patients, researchers, physicians to think there might be some benefit. And, and so I, I gave it a try. Um, it, it helped a little bit. I think the, the big lesson to me was that if, if you're not a recreational marijuana user, which I'm not, and you don't know what you're doing, which I didn't, it's pretty easy to, to take way too much with some interesting side effects along the way. Um, which is the main reason I, I tell that story in stone. Another way to frame that question, though, is how people use it across the board. It's true. I talk to mostly people who turn to it for, I don't want to say legitimate reasons, but kind of legitimate reasons, meaning those people who had, um, like as one young man did, uh, was suffering just severe debilitating nausea after chemotherapy, had tried four or five drugs, was still miserable, was thinking actually of stopping his chemotherapy, um, enrolling in hospice. This is a 22-year-old guy who was ready to give up on a cure because his nausea was so bad. So when his doctor recommended um, medical marijuana, he said he'd be willing to give it a try. For every patient like that that I talked to and put in the book, there were many others who used it for aches and pains, trouble getting to sleep now and again. Um, and we don't have a lot of data to support those small uses because I'm not even sure what the outcome measures would be for those. And we probably won't anytime soon. I think uh, if the science is going to evolve and grow, it'll probably be for some of the, the big ticket items, the major symptoms that really make life very, very miserable for, for lots and lots of people who need relief. I think this is a 
common theme in the book is you highlight a lot of people, uh, enthusiastic, very passionate, take this very seriously, who are often out ahead of where the research community is. And and you do a good job of highlighting where the research stands. Uh, but I, I it was very evident that there is this gap between um, some of these sort of a- advanced users, lack of a better term, and the and the body of research that exists. Is that gap actually closing or are we still in this position where research is is really far behind and falling farther behind the the community at large? Oh, that's a great question. I, research definitely is behind, and I think most researchers would say that, and probably most medical marijuana advocates would say that too. In fact, I was invited to Washington um, recently to give a congressional briefing on the need for uh, better medical marijuana research. And, and the sense I got from uh, the congressmen and staffers in the room was that regardless of where people came down on legalizing medical marijuana, uh, one thing that everybody could agree on, I think, in that room, although I didn't take a poll, was that we need more and better research on medical marijuana's benefits and and also its risks. Because I do think research has fallen far behind And it's not likely to catch up anytime soon without some major changes. I mean, right now, for a lot of new therapies out there, at least the ones that are not funded by drug companies, um, the federal government is the major sponsor. I've been fortunate to have more than $10 million in federal funding for research in my career. Um, I would not have been able to build the career that I have as a researcher without federal funding, but there's no federal funding for uh, the studies into the benefits of medical marijuana. And until that changes, until medical marijuana is rescheduled, until there's some change in the federal government in the U.S. at least about um, research into medical marijuana's benefits, it's going to be very, very hard uh, for research to catch up. There, there's some ways to do at least a temporary end run around that lack of clinical trials. Uh, for instance, I work with some students here at Penn to create a website, marijuanaresults.org, that we actually have a Kickstarter campaign for now. Um, to see if we can get some funding. The idea is to to create a website that would let patients share their results, both good and bad, uh, about medical marijuana for various symptoms, both so patients can learn from each other, at least until we have good clinical trial evidence, but also, maybe more importantly for me, so patients can tell researchers where the potential benefits are. And if you're a researcher and you've got 500 or 1,000 people saying it really, really works for the tremor of Parkinson's disease, for instance, that doesn't mean it works, but it does mean that as you're thinking about where to focus your efforts and where to design a clinical trial, you've got all these people who think it works, well, maybe that should be a focal area for a clinical trial. So again, not as a substitute for research, um, but that sort of, of what I call in stone crowdsourced research for medical marijuana really has to be a focus uh, to help research catch up. It, could we see states take a lead in this arena? I mean, policy is really complicated with medical marijuana. You live in a state where it's illegal. I live in a state where it is legal. Uh, and here in California, we saw them take the lead, you know, with the stem cell uh, ban on research that was introduced under the Bush administration to set up their own independent fund for that. Uh, are we going to s- potentially see something along those lines as a as a policy shift here, or does it really need to come at the federal level? That's a great question. You could. To some degree, you already have. So in California, um, this is going back at least 10 years or so ago, maybe more, um, the state gave funding to a medical marijuana research institute that was based in San Diego. Uh, Igor Grant was the director. 
like it's still open and functioning at least to some degree now. And that uh, institute, uh, that center, was able to fund um, some really interesting, intriguing, and important preliminary research into the medical benefits of, of medical marijuana. Um, and also, I think, to some degree, uh, gave a leg up to researchers who were either working in this field already, like Donald Abrams at UCSF, or people who were thinking about entering this area from uh, other perspectives of that of a pain researcher like Barth Wilsey and both of those people I, I spoke to with um, as I was researching Stoned. And, and that funding through the state in California was really instrumental, I think, in, in getting some good research done. So I think that certainly could happen in other states, and it probably will. Um, and I think that would be great, uh, particularly with respect to registries that are state-based ways of crowdsourcing research results. I think most states that have medical marijuana laws should have some mechanism of collecting data from people to figure out whether, when, and how it's working. But I also think the federal government really needs to jump in. You have, by some estimates, at least a million people, probably many, many more in the United States using medical marijuana. I think the federal government really has an interest and arguably an ob obligation to figure out what sorts of benefits people can expect from it, or at very least to begin to understand those those risks in the context of, of medical marijuana. So I'd be excited to see states take the lead, but I also think the federal government needs to step up too. Let's talk about the risks a little bit, because I think we've painted a skeptical picture, but a, a, a skeptical rosy picture so far. And I want to delve into the risks uh, let's start at like some of the basic things. I've always thought that, um, you know, the most common form of ingestion is, is typically smoking or vaping. Uh, are we seeing long-term damage because people are smoking this lung damage, for example? You know, it seems like you should, when you smoke, uh, a joint, you're inhaling pretty much the same sorts of tar and particulates and other nasty stuff that you inhale when you smoke a cigarette. So you'd think you'd get the same kind of, of long-term lung damage. In practice, though, that, that doesn't happen. And there are at least two explanations for that. One, which is intriguing, at least theoretically, and that is that marijuana has THC and CBD, and CBD in particular seems to have anti-inflammatory effects. And so one theory is that when you smoke a marijuana cigarette, a joint, um, you're inhaling a lot of the same tar and particulates that cause lung inflammation that can lead to long-term lung damage, but you're also inhaling with all those particulates and tar the CBD that essentially tamps down some of that inflammation. So one theory is that marijuana contains its own protectant, if you will, in the form of CBD. So that's, that's one theory for why we don't see the sort of uh, long-term lung damage due to marijuana smoking. Uh, the other reason, which has been borne out in, in several very, very large-scale studies now, uh, is probably just a matter of dose. So those people who uh, develop uh, long-term lung disease, emphysema, mostly from smoking tobacco, often smoke two or three packs a day for several decades. So think for a moment about what kind of shape you'd be in if you smoked 20 or 40 or 60 joints a day for 20 or 30 years, your lungs would be the least of your problems. So it may be that in the same doses that you get with tobacco, um, marijuana would cause that kind of damage. But several studies now have failed to find any of those um, uh, long-term effects, either in the form of disease or either in, in terms of a fairly mild um, changes in, in lung function on pulmonary function testing. What about addiction? Is that um, a real concern here? 
Yeah, you know, it turns out it is. Um, and just as I thought going into this research process that lung damage was pretty obvious and turned out not to be the case, I really didn't think that addiction was much of a risk. And as it turns out, it, it actually is. There is uh, a risk of addiction uh, dependence with marijuana that's probably less significant in terms of severity than it is for, say, heroin or cocaine or, or even alcohol, but it does exist. And some of the researchers I spoke with quoted me numbers of about, I'm rounding a little bit here, but about one in 10. So one in 10 people who use marijuana regularly will develop some dependence, meaning they'll continue to use de despite marijuana's impact on um, their job, their social function, um, and or their health. That doesn't necessarily mean that addiction in marijuana looks the same as addiction in heroin. Um, not necessarily the same uh, level of impact and the same life-destroying addiction that it can be with, with heroin. Again, you can't overdose, at least, with marijuana. Um, having said that, though, there is a real syndrome of, of marijuana addiction. There's also, by the way, a syndrome of marijuana withdrawal that's been well-described in people who use regularly and try to stop that's associated with increased anxiety, increased agitation, um, sort of many of the, the symptoms you'd expect to see from somebody who, in effect, bounces back, much in the way that somebody uh, might go through withdrawal after stopping alcohol. You know, we're talking about marijuana as a controlled drug on some level here that you're using, we're using the term dose. Um, we're, we're talking about, um, how, uh, often people are, are using it and wonder under what conditions, but it's a natural product. And I wonder how well regulated that is. Like, are we getting the same THC level from dispensary to dispensary? Um, how well regulated is the quality of marijuana at this point? Is that a big concern for the medical marijuana establishment? It is, yes, or at least it, it should be. I think um, one of the, the reasons I've, I've gradually become a proponent for legalizing medical marijuana is that I've become more convinced that people are using it, whether it's legal or not. They're using it for medical purposes. And one advantage of legalization is that state laws can mandate testing and reporting of just what's in that brownie or gummy bear or potato chip or joint or whatever you're about to, to eat, drink, or, or smoke. There is, I think, a, a wide variation in particularly THC and CBD concentrations, but concentrations of other cannabinoids too. And, and the thing is, you don't really know what you're getting unless what you're getting has been tested. That's particularly true of, true of joints. We know that the concentration of THC has been growing up pretty dramatically, whereas 10 or 15 years ago, concentrations of maybe 3 or 4% THC were common. Now, uh, in joints that are purchased in dispensaries or on the street, when they're confiscated, we're seeing THC concentrations of 12, 15, sometimes 20% or more. And, and what that means is that not only is the average dose, if you will, of THC getting stronger, but the variation is wider too. 10, 15 years ago, a strong joint might be 5%, a weak one might be 1%. Now strong could be more than 20%. So you really don't know what you're getting. And, and to me, I think that's, that's a powerful argument for testing. And many states are doing it. So for instance, Colorado, uh, I visited, when I was researching Stoned, I visited CanLabs, which is a laboratory that tests the contents of medical marijuana which now I understand is, is mandated in Colorado. So if you go into a medical marijuana dispensary, 
in Colorado and buy a joint, you should know exactly how much THC and how much CBD is is in that, which doesn't quite get us to the point of talking about marijuana as a medication. There's still a lot of other things in there that we don't really understand, but it's closer and it allows patients and in theory their physicians to think carefully about what might be helpful. So to give you one example, there are researchers like Barth Wilsey at UC Davis who are becoming much more interested in CBD as a treatment for neuropathic pain. Um, CBD doesn't make you stone, THC does, so somebody with neuropathic pain might actually seek out a strain of marijuana that's high in CBD and low in THC to try to get some pain relief, but to avoid that feeling of, of feeling high or stone. But again, you can only do that if whatever you're buying is being tested. You know, it sounds like you entered this with a very skeptical eye towards medical marijuana, but you've come around to the point where you're in favor of legalization. Uh, how do you think we should approach medical marijuana going forward as a larger community? Well, I, I think we should be careful. Um, I, I am in general in favor, favor of, of legalization, uh, but that's mostly because it will allow testing, as we've talked about. It'll allow uh, counseling um, requirements about risks it will allow potentially even mandatory training and potentially even certification for physicians and other providers to make recommendations. So, you know, one of the reasons I'm, I'm actually more enthusiastic about medical marijuana is not because I think it's got enormous benefits and no risks, but because I think the benefits are honestly uncertain for many indications and the risks are not huge, but significant. And I think that's a perfect situation in which you really don't want lots of people using without supervision, guidance, or advice. You really need the state or the federal government getting involved and giving people some guidance along the way. So I'm not sure what's going to play out. I think we'll probably see legalization in a few more states, and then there probably will be some states that will hold out forever. Um, but I really do hope that we'll see, along with legalization, much more regulation in terms of testing and training requirements for counseling. And as I've said before, uh, we desperately need more research, whether that comes from uh, the state level or uh, the federal government in the form of NIH or or both. Uh, that's That's got to be a component of whatever happens going forward. On that hopeful note, David Catherett, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Great to be back. It was a pleasure. Are you convinced medical marijuana can actually be used as a medication? Can actually be used? I mean, it is being used as a medication. Uh, is it effective? I think, you know, there are some data that I think he's right. I think that that in certain cases, it can be effective. Is it the most effective and the safest alternative? I think the jury's still out. And I think fundamentally what I walk away from that interview is that we definitely need to do more research on the question. You know, we don't have all of the answers. You know, the idea that it's difficult to do research, you know, using this particular substance seems to me just political and kind of ridiculous. You know, if people are using it, if people are reporting that they find it effective, we should study it. We should put science to the question and then we can actually tell people empirically whether what they're feeling is really effective and, you know, worth the potential side effects or whether there are better alternatives. And we spent the better part of that interview talking about CBD, which the second most active ingredient in most marijuana, and we don't know jack about it, basically, is what the outcome was. It's like we have all this sort of indication that in oils, it can help these different treatments, but we really just don't know. Uh, I am less convinced about 
most of the kind of out there scenarios they presented. Like there was some data about the cancer treatments. There was some data about the seizures. Those occurred to me more anecdotal than really evidence-based for a large population. The pain management, though, I think it's very hard to argue about what we're seeing in the in the marketplace right now. And pain, I have my doubts that even if we do a whole body of research on pain and marijuana's influence on pain, that we're really going to come to any conclusions. Pain is such a subjective situation, uh, especially when you're talking about neuropathic pain, that I wonder if even with dollars investment coming from uh, the federal or state agencies, whether we're going to make progress there. I mean, you know, pain, as you mentioned, is really complicated, right? It's very hard to measure outcomes. How do you you know, how how do you and I agree on whether or not my pain is the same as your pain and so forth? Right? The last time I went to a doctor, the pain level was indicated by a smiley face chart from like one to 10, yep. where he went from like smiley to grumpy. That is ridiculous that that is our quantitative tool for measuring pain right now. So I think that that's, you know, in some ways, in order for us to evaluate marijuana's effects on pain, we have to develop better tools to measure pain. And I don't know that they're going to have that they're going to be able to rely on any kind of self-report. I mean, I think we have to find some kind of biomarker of pain if we can. Um, and, you know, see if that changes significantly. But I also think that, you know, that there's there's a huge industry of individuals who kind of promote marijuana. And I think that they're, they're because it's illegal in a lot of places, because it's criminalized, I think there is this kind of martyrism or this, you know, this kind of sense that people need to go out there and, you know, claim that it's really great. And so I feel like if maybe if we took away all of that, you know, side of it, that people could be more honest with it. And and this idea that it's not addictive to me, I was really glad that he, he addressed that, that it, it certainly is addictive. And, you know, that that's that's something that people need to think about as well. At the end of the day, the most compelling piece of information is that the population of users is growing dramatically, and you can't argue with reality. Like med medicine doesn't happen outside the context of society. So I don't see much hope on the horizon in the political landscape to see a lot of investment in research in the sector, but that's all we can do is hope. And, you know, we're even hearing here in California, where obviously we're in a major drought, that marijuana farming is actually contributing a lot to some of the water issues in certain counties. So, you know, it's, it's a bigger issue even, I think, than uh, just the medical side. But that's the topic for an entirely different show. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your best recipes, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of their new course, Fundamentals of Sustainable Living. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. 
Inquiring Minds is produced by evil twin Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Teach. See you next week. all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER.